Oti, everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. So as usual, we'll start with a little bit of meditation together, followed by a Q&A session. So if anyone has any questions already, you're welcome to post questions in the chat at any time. Please don't answer each other's questions. That's not what this is for. The idea is that if people are posting questions, they're looking for an answer from me. So if you don't have a question, you can just close your eyes. And we'll spend about the first 15-20 minutes practicing meditation together. So we start by focusing on the stomach. There's nothing special about the stomach, but it's preferred because it's coarse and it's obvious and it's very, very physical. And the benefit of focusing on the physical, physical is that it's coarse and obvious, but also that it's very real. And real... Being very real is important because it's out of our control. It's an object that will teach us about reality. It will teach us some important lessons about our relationship with reality that aren't evident in ordinary daily life where we are um, in a constant struggle to seek out and gain what we want and to chase away what we don't want. Uh, we we miss and overlook some important truths about reality. Uh, mainly that reality is unpredictable. So we're constantly seeking out that which is stable, predictable, dependable. We want to depend on things and find our happiness and our peace in things. And because things are, are not like that, we suffer, we feel stress, and we're constantly in a battle to try to find, attain the unattainable, the stability. That it will be satisfying, and that we can control, maintain and manipulate and fix all of our problems. So we're constantly looking to change the world around us, change our experience. And we'll, by looking at just this simple reality of the stomach rising and falling, we'll see that that's not really a tenable, uh, a tenable uh, proposition or a tenable perspective. We see that it's... Mis misled, misguided. So just start observing the stomach rising and falling. If you can't feel it, it's maybe unfamiliar if you haven't practiced it before. Just you can put your hand on your stomach. Just to begin with, 
until you're able to feel it. You're not trying to control it. Not trying to condition it, deepen it, or smooth it out. It's unpredictable. And when the stomach rises, just say to yourself, rising. And when it falls, falling. Not out loud, just in your mind. The word is like a mantra. It's used to focus your attention on the object. Don't just repeat it mindlessly in your head. Use it as a means to remind yourself when you experience the rising, that, that you perceive it just as rising, not as a problem to be fixed or something to be controlled or conditioned, not as me or mine, good or bad. Try and teach yourself how to just see something as it is, without judgment. So just watching the stomach rising and falling, this becomes a, a good base to become then aware of all of the other aspects of your experience. So while your mind is focused on the rising and falling, you might be become aware of other aspects of your experience, feelings, for example, pain, pleasure, calm. And just try and be aware of those as well. When you feel pain, just say to yourself, pain, pain, or aching, aching. 
And if you feel happy, say happy, happy, and just repeat it to yourself until the feeling goes away. Once it's gone, just go back to the rising, fall in the stomach, continue saying to yourself, rising, falling. If you feel calm, say to yourself, calm, calm. Another aspect of experience is the thought processes in the mind, thinking about the past or future, good thoughts, bad thoughts, many different kinds of thought. But in the end, when whatever you're thinking, the thinking part is just a thought. So just say to yourself, thinking, thinking. And generally shouldn't last once you've noted it. Once you've noted it a few times, just go back to the rising falling. But we're not trying to stop ourselves from thinking, and there's no uh, value judgment on the distraction. Getting distracted by other experiences is not a sign that you're practicing poorly. We're not trying to control our experiences. We're trying to change the way we, we react to them. So whatever you do experience, just try and apply mindfulness to see it clearly without judgment. So thinking is just thinking. Just say to yourself, thinking, thinking. And that's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Apart from the thoughts, there's also the emotions, the state of mind, many different kinds of state of mind. 
for emotions, they generally can be separated into liking and disliking. Liking or wanting, just say to yourself, liking, liking or wanting, wanting. If you dislike something, say to yourself, disliking, disliking. Or if you feel sad or angry, frustrated, bored, depressed, afraid, just find a word for what you're experiencing and remind yourself the nature of it until it goes away, just to keep yourself from reacting to it. Disliking, disliking, frustrated, frustrated, bored, bored, whatever it is. If you feel tired or drowsy, just focus on that. Say to yourself, tired, tired, drowsy. Or if you feel restless and anxious and distracted, any of those things stressed, say to yourself, anxious, distracted, restless, restless. Or if you have doubt or confusion, doubting yourself, doubting your practice, say to yourself, doubting, doubting, confused, confused. Really any state of mind, whatever your state of mind is, focused or unfocused, judgmental, any kind of state, just find a word for it. Just trying to Break the chain so that liking is just liking, disliking is just disliking, and you don't perpetuate it, you don't feed it, you don't encourage it to grow. And finally, mindful of the senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling. Try and note these as well. If you hear something with your eyes closed, say hearing, hearing. If you see something even with your eyes closed, you might say, uh, you might see lights or colors or pictures. Just say to yourself, seeing, seeing. Smelling is smell a good smell or bad smell, say smelling, smelling. If you taste something sweet, sour, salty, whatever taste, just say tasting, tasting. And if you feel something on the body, hot, cold, hard, soft, just say feeling, feeling.
it once it's gone or after a while just go back to the rising falling so we just always come back to the stomach just because it's a good base All right, so thank you for meditating together with us. I see there are many questions in the chat, so we'll move right along into the Q&A session. Um, if you have questions, you can still post them in the chat. They're being organized. We'll start from the ones that have already been asked. Uh, but from here on, only questions in the chat. Anything that's not a question will just be removed just to keep it tidy. If you don't have a question, just close your eyes and stay mindful with us. Thank you, Bhante. Here's the first question. In the height of stress and worry, is the focus still on the stomach? But what else? No, when you have stress and worry, focus on the stress and worry. Stomach is just a base. There's nothing special or preferable about it. Um, it it's a good um, indicator. If you're not with the stomach very much at all, then it's a good indicator that your mind is not very focused. Uh, but apart from that, just make sure you're noting whatever it is that does distract you. And that once you've done that, then you go back to the stomach. But don't avoid or ignore 
something that distracts you. Uh, stress and worry should be at the forefront of, at the top of your list of things to note, and you can note physical sensations associated with it, which are distinct from the worry and stress. But note them as well. Should we practice loving-kindness metta meditation? Is this distinct from noting meditation, vipassana? Is metta love a concept, or is it as real as all other objects of experience? So metta doesn't really mean loving love. It means friendship or friendliness. Friendliness is the best. It literally means friendliness or friendship. So metta meditation is, is friendliness or maybe even kindness, but friendliness is probably the best way of understanding it. Um, and, and friendliness is a quality of mind. Metta is a quality of mind. But when you practice metta meditation, your focus is not on the, the, kind, the, the friendliness. It's on the person who you're being friendly towards or who you're extending friendship towards. So the object is, is a person, you think of them, and you apply or you cultivate um, friendliness. And because the object is the person, it's called samatha meditation. It is conceptual. Uh, if you were to ever focus on the friendliness itself and say to yourself, friendly and friendly or loving, loving or kind, kind, focusing on your own quality of mind, then it would be focusing on a real object. But that's not how you practice metta meditation. Metta, you think about a person. And because you thought your focus is the person, you will never see impermanent suffering and non-self. So it's a good meditation. It's helpful, especially for people who have anger issues. Um, but only on a basic level, it can never cut through delusion and allow you to see clearly. And so it can't lead directly to freedom from suffering. Is it really necessary to use this technique of mental notation? Is it not possible to cultivate mindfulness without this device? It's possible, it's just not very effective. Uh, it's much easier to cultivate concentration and forceful concentration without it because the noting uh, neutralizes your uh, qualities of mind. It, it, it sets the mind in an objective state. It's highly preferable to just letting your mind focus on things according to its whim, according to its, uh, its preconceived mind state. Noting is an artificial means of, of conditioning the mind to not condition the, your perception of the object. So you set your mind in a way that uh, just sees the object as it is. It's it's a, a, a means or a method of accomplishing something. So I'm skeptical of anyone who thinks they can develop uh, substantial mindfulness without it. I mean, it really is a core uh, technique of, of meditation. Mantra meditation is really ancient and perhaps the most um, well-established and uh, approved of meditation form where you use a word to focus your attention on an object. And it's very much an ancient Buddhist way.
I mean, if you're not using the noting technique, then uh, tell me exactly how, what are you doing to cultivate mindfulness? So it's not possible to cultivate mindfulness spontaneously without applying some artifice to to do so. It's not just going to spontaneously arise because you didn't do anything. So for very special individuals who are already on the right track, it might be quite simple for them to just adjust their mind a little bit and, and suddenly be mindful and see things clearly. For most of us, it takes a lot of work and reprogramming the habits of the mind and that's what the mantra technique is used for the reminding of sati sati means reminding or remembering not mindfulness so to, to this question comes up i think because of the word mindfulness it seems like something that doesn't have anything to do with saying to yourself rising falling or thinking or pain but reminding yourself certainly does, and that's the actual word. It's not mindfulness, it's a poor English translation. Will practicing samatha have any effects on vipassana? It can. I can't say what will have effects for an individual. Uh, generally speaking, samatha is beneficial for the cultivation of vipassana. It uh, creates a baseline in the mind of, of focus and strength. And so you can apply that strength in Vipassana meditation. When one feels nervous, it contains tension in the body, a fast heartbeat, rising and falling of the stomach. Should I pick one of those to note, or should I note the feeling nervous as a whole? Well, feeling nervous isn't the whole. Uh, feeling nervous is the mental aspect. So it doesn't contain those things. Right? Feeling nervous is just the one part of it. Feeling nervous doesn't contain tension in the body. Uh, that would be a mistake to think that. So there'll be the nervousness in the mind, there will be the tension in the body, there will be a feeling of of the heart in the heart, there will be the stomach rising and falling. Any of those is fine, honestly. Usually you want to pick the nervousness in the mind, the anxious feeling, worry, or whatever it is. It's fleeting and momentary, which is why you think of it as containing all the rest, because when it's gone, all you're left is with the, with is the other things, which can then re-trigger the nervousness. So it seems like they're all one big thing, but they're just triggering each other. And you just note whatever's present. But if you notice nervousness, you should note that. How to practice when facing a non-accidental death? Well, I don't really give advice on for people how to, how to live their lives. Um, it's just far too complicated and not really to the point. Um, the the question, the idea of what you should do in any given situation, how you should live your life, or something, is a bit um, barking up the wrong tree. You don't need to answer such questions. So, I mean, this is the, the point. The thing is, this is a very base, a very vague and general question. You haven't asked 
uh, what sort of meditation you're doing. You're just asking how to practice. You might be meaning, how do you, what meditation should I practice? Uh, in which case, of course, I can offer advice, but it doesn't have anything to do with non-accidental death. It has to do with uh, experience. And so there's nothing specific to practice when faced with trauma or, or loss or that sort of thing. Um, and, and so why I say it's it's um, the wrong focus to focus on how to live your life and what to do and so on is because those questions get answered when your mind is clear. So the best thing is to focus on clarity of mind. Uh, you know, you can give guidelines on how to live your life, what things you shouldn't do, like killing and stealing and lying and cheating, and things you should do, like being kind and generous and helpful and thoughtful and so on. Uh, but ultimately, all of that comes through the practice of mindfulness. So uh, whether you're talking about how you should live your life or you're asking about how to practice meditation, I would still recommend mindfulness. I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate. You might find that helpful. Uh, we also have an at-home meditation course. If you want to sign up for that, you can go to our website. Uh, it's all free, so feel free to look up the resources that we have that might help you. Throughout the day, is it better to note consistently or accurately in an ultimate sense? So you mean if I'm gonna if I have a choice between noting consistently but inaccurately or accurately but inconsistently, which is better? I mean I don't think the answer is very hard to hard to understand. I mean neither sounds very good. Um, I mean consistency is an important quality of of practice and accuracy is an important quality of practice uh, i mean it's a bit speculative to to ask which one is better but uh, i would say accuracy is is more important in the sense that it's dangerous inaccuracy is more dangerous than inconsistency potentially simply because inaccuracy can lead you to craziness and so on like i mean if you're not noting things as they are if you're noting something else like it's this but you're noting that that can drive you crazy you know it can do all sorts of crazy things to the mind i mean it it, it doesn't mean that you have to be fastidious about accuracy it just means make sure you're noting what's actually happening right like two things first if you're hearing and you'd say to yourself seeing obviously i don't know that anyone ever would ever do that but that would be crazy because it's hearing it's not seeing right and the other one is note the actual experience so if you see a dog just say to yourself seeing don't say dog dog uh, those are the two accuracies that are important and consistency is just about quality and and the uh, efficacy if you're inconsistent it's not going to be very efficacious i find it hard to be mindful when thinking I say to myself, thinking, but the thinking disappears when I do so. Even when hearing, I say hearing, but I can't comprehend what the other person is saying. Do you have any advice? Well, sometimes you might not want to be, you might be focused on gaining information, so you might not 
want to put too much effort in noting hearing, but you can still note, you can still note hearing and understand what's being said. You just have to be a little more skillful about it. Uh, you don't have to note all the time, just try and note when you can, when it's convenient. I mean, that, the fact that you're trying is a great thing to hear, so keep it up. Just do what you can. Uh, I mean, ultimately, these sorts of questions uh, indicate a, a, a sort of the struggle that a meditator goes through to get their feet, um, find their feet. You know, learning any skill is going to take some struggling and some wrestling in the beginning. Yeah, but just be patient and and you know, don't have high expectations or uh, force yourself to live up to some kind of uh, expectation or or requirement that you might have. Just try and be mindful when you can and develop it as a skill, as a practice. I mean, there's there's other things there that the fact that it disappears is seeing impermanence, so that's a good sort of thing to start to re understand that uh, thinking is not a constant state. It's not me thinking. It's something that arises and ceases. So seeing that is quite helpful, actually. And when you you can't comprehend what the other person is saying, it helps you start to see non-self. So that's another useful thing to see that you're not in control. You 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 uh, you can't even understand someone when you want to understand them, which is kind of silly, right? There there's they're right there. The sound is right there. Why can't I understand it? It helps you start to see non-self. These are useful to help you start to let go. How do I meditate to deal with living alone? Same as how you meditate with anything. There's nothing special about that. I mean, you just rephrase what you're asking and say meditation helps you deal with living alone. That's the answer. Mind, um, you know, Satipatthana meditation certainly does. So if you haven't read our booklet, read our booklet. You can try doing our at-home meditation course. Living alone goes from being a sad and and uh, scary thing to being a sort of a, a pleasant and peaceful sort of thing. So you're able to be mindful and quiet. Is it better to meditate in the belly or nostrils in the long term? Well, it's not technically either better. Uh, we recommend the stomach because it's more coarse and, and more easily identifiable as a physical sensation. The nostrils are kind of subtle, and so it can become a, a, a conceptual object. But, you know, it doesn't have to be. The, the, you don't have to pick and choose. So if you feel something at the nostril, just say to yourself, feeling, feeling, and then go back to the stomach. How do I meditate with intention to increase my willpower and taking actions? I don't quite know what that means. How do I meditate with intention? I mean, you would meditate on the intention if you have an intention, say, wanting or intending. Note those. But if you're asking how do I meditate in order to 
um, cultivate the intentions or increase your willpower or so on. That's not what this is about. Uh, I mean, willpower sort of, just because willpower is a, is related to patience. If you have strong willpower, we desc- that's a, dis- a word we use to describe someone who is patient and doesn't uh, give in to their desires or have strong desires or cling or, or react to things. So it's, but it's a bit misleading because it's not really willpower. It's just strength of mind and purity of mind. I am wondering if, when doing Bhutto meditation, we are still to focus on the breath and the four things to be mindful of due to it, or only focus on the Bhutto. So, according to the texts, and and really reasonably so, uh, you should focus on one object at a time. So if your focus is Buddha, it should not have anything to do with the breath or the four satipatthana. Uh, those people who mix them, I have, I I'm critical of that. I think I think it's proper to be critical of that. I know it's a very well established sort of meditation technique, especially in Southeast Asia, but it certainly isn't in 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 accords with the ancient tradition so i mean generally meditation you can't go wrong if you're if you're practicing carefully and thoughtfully it's usually helpful for you but we've talked i've talked about this before like mixing objects has very strange consequences it seems and it looks like people who do that start to get themselves mixed up Thinking, and this is again the accuracy. If you're watching the breath and you say buddho buddho, you're inaccurately noting. Your mantra is inaccurate, and that inaccuracy creates a perversion, uh, you know, a corrupt, a distortion in the mind. So a con, a conflation in the mind, and you see that in the writings of such people, they start to see the Buddha in themselves and the Buddha in their breath and that sort of thing, which is not at all what those meditations are for. That's not at all the the it's not a Buddhist way to practice. It's a very sort of um, new agey sort of way to practice. It's it's not Buddhism. I'd recommend reading the Visuddhimagga. It gives some very detailed descriptions of those sorts of meditation. If I notice I was distracted, but the distracting object has passed, should I dig back to examine whatever distracted me? No, you you, you don't don't go back to the past. What's gone is gone. Just note what's in the present. If you usually in that case we would note knowing, knowing, just knowing that that we were distracted because there's the knowledge or the awareness in the present moment. So note that awareness. Just say knowing, knowing, and move on. It's not magic like it's not like a game where you have to catch things, uh, like Fruit Ninja. We were talking about Fruit Ninja this morning. This game where you cut fruit, I think, or something like that. You don't have to catch anything. Just try and be present. It's not a game. It's not magic. That sort of thing helped. It shows you impermanence, or shows you non-self that you're not in control. You 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 can't um, 
simply be mindful magically. You'll, you'll notice that you miss things and so on. I want to take on the sixth precept. Is it permissible to eat my one meal in the evening after 6 p.m. instead of in the morning? It seems appropriate since this is our family dinner, a tradition. First of all, there's no there's no taking one precept. That's just not the tradition. Either you take eight precepts or you take five precepts. If you decide to only eat in the evening, that could be a helpful practice, but don't try and see it as keeping a certain precept. It's important just for tradition's sake that we that we maintain the purity. I mean, it, it may seem kind of dogmatic. Probably seems quite dogmatic, but there's a value to being dogmatic so that we don't just do whatever we want. Follow the, you know, out of respect for the tradition. It's an important thing. It's something that is not very well appreciated uh, in modern times. So out of respect for the tradition, if you're going to keep eight precepts, keep eight precepts. If you're going to keep five precepts, keep five precepts. And and on top of that, if you whatever practice you think is helpful, absolutely go for it. doesn't mean you shouldn't do that sort of thing. Um, but it's not in... Um, it's not in keeping with the eight precepts to eat in the afternoon, eat in the evening. That's a, the whole point of eating in the morning is as a means of sustaining you for the day. If you eat in the evening, it's not really all that helpful. It's just to satiate your hunger. But we eat in the morning because that's uh, what we, that gives us energy to to live throughout the day. It's also better for your health. It's just a, a better way to live. It's much more natural to eat in the morning and then just live your life, have some juice in the evening kind of thing. But, um, you know, if you're eating family dinner, then you know, just eat family dinner. If that's your one meal, then sure. It's, it might be helpful for your practice, but I wouldn't put too much emphasis on it. No, I mean, go ahead. It could be very helpful. I don't want to discourage you. I am beginning to see good results from my noting practice, so I want to help people. Is there a specific amount for how much I should try to engage other people into practice? Well, probably close to zero. Specific amount. Uh, like Because you say, I want to help people. Um, it's not a very good argument. I am seeing good results, and that is why I want to help people. The wanting is not caused by the good results. It's caused by other things. It's caused by a liking. Generally, for Buddhists, it's a it's a liking of your results, and the liking leads to wanting, um, you know, a, a, a greater experience like this. It's what leads people to perpetuate religion because they're excited for others, and they when when other people are practicing it, they feel good again. So it's kind of an addiction, actually. And and the point is that it's not really all that helpful. Wanting to help other people is never really all that helpful. Um, but what you have to do, and what, what people, everyone should do who practices meditation, is leave yourself open and be kind and thoughtful when other people are interested in meditation or when people have problems that you think would be helped with meditation. So if someone comes to you with a problem asking for your advice and you're in a position where um, they would appreciate 
advice about meditation. I mean, I, I've talked to people about meditation and it just turned them right off. Like, it, it just made them think of me as kind of a freak. Uh, so, it, it's not the case that uh, just because you can give someone something good that it's a good thing to give them. It has to be something that they can receive and benefit from. And usually that's only when they approach you themselves looking for help. I mean, it's someone who is in a position of a friend or a sibling, a child, that sort of thing. Those are the cases where it's uh, useful. When I went to practice intensive meditation in, in, in Asia and I came back, I had a couple of people come up to me and they say, hey, I heard you were in Asia, you know, do you, could you teach me your meditation? I taught both of them, and they both did really well. One of them is now a meditation teacher. He runs courses in Toronto. Uh, but I got him started. I mean, he was very interested. It, was, it, had, it had very little to do with me and much more to do with him that, that he ended up succeeding because I was just giving him the information, passing it on, and he wanted it. That's when it's most beneficial. My uh, my father's practicing meditation, and he came to me. He asked me. He had uh, some strong personal reasons to take up meditation and thought that it would help him, and he's seen great results. He says it's really helped him. But that was because he was looking for it. The more one meditates, the less one sees entertainment, possessions, and modern fast life as satisfactory or as a goal. What life goals are sensible for a meditator to bring purpose? Purpose and goals are not, um, not really a part of the path. I mean, the only goal is freedom. It's a very simple goal. But it's it's also freedom from goals, you know. Life doesn't have purpose. I mean, there's there's a saying, uh, the purpose of life is a life of purpose. I don't know if that's accurate either. Uh, the purpose of but but it is in the sense of if by a life of purpose you mean a life that is really lived, uh, that is really mindful, really present, really aware, really living, you know. But a better way to say it is just freedom, contentment, peace. Goals are just something to be mindful, to be aware of, and to see as they are and let go. Is it unwholesome or even lying to use the appear offline option on Discord or similar websites. I just don't want the pressure of people expecting a timely response or to say something, etc. Hmm. The trials and tribulations of the online world. I mean, it sounds like you're asking the website to lie for you, right? That's not very wholesome. Maybe there's some other you can put yourself as unavailable or something. I don't know. It's it it's not a huge issue, but it is something to consider. I mean, it's a surprisingly interesting question because it might seem kind of silly, but appear offline when you're actually online does sound a bit like a lie, right?
I'm going to close my window. All right. How can I bring myself to doing what I know needs to be done? Procrastination and laziness and resisting work has become a pattern. How do I break this pattern because it's made my life stagnant? Well, you have to include the perception that it has made your life a certain way, the disliking of it, the depression about it, that those sorts of things. Make sure you're noting those as well. I mean, there's no way through but through. Uh, you do the work or you don't. I don't have a magic trick, and there is no magic trick that's going to fix things for you. Uh, it might take lifetimes before you do it, and there is no special thing you can do. Uh, it's up to you if you do the work. I mean, I would recommend doing courses and even intensive courses if you have a chance. But uh, it's up to you to do the work. Is it okay for me to eat one meal a day? I'm 14. I can't uh, advise you on that, I don't think. I'm not your parent or guardian. Uh, you should talk to your parents about it. I think I can get in trouble if I advise you in that regard. Um, so, But I guess I could say, from a religious perspective, there's nothing against it. So if you're asking about whether Buddhism has anything about that, um, there's there's certainly cases where seven-year-olds only ate one meal a day. So there's nothing religiously wrong about it. But I can't, I don't think I can encourage that. I, I'm not trying to discourage you in it. I just can't take a stand on it, I think. Sorry, I'm, I'm glad that you're asking this question. It's great to see you here. Uh, hang on, stick, stick around. And... Uh, Please, uh, if you haven't read our booklet, read our booklet and maybe with your parents, uh, find a way you can do one of our courses if your parents approve. Even as one starts practicing vipassana, one gains confidence about its effectiveness. What doubt is removed as one attains sotapanna stage? Well, the the potential for doubt is removed. So you can say you gain confidence, but you can lose that confidence and doubt again. The only way you can have perfect confidence is if you see the result, see the goal, true freedom from suffering. So once you've seen that, then there's perfect confidence. Like you say you have confidence, but you know, what is that confidence based on? If you haven't actually experienced the fruit, what kind of confidence is it? It could be blind faith, it could, but it's limited. It's never going to be perfectly strong or, or well-established. Once one has entered deep samadhi and comes to have a clear, powerful knowing, how does that transfer to permanent nibbana? It always passes away eventually. Well, it doesn't transfer to permanent nibbana. That, what you're seeing is the difference between samatha and, and vipassana. 
So you can use the strength of mind that you've developed. Um, but that clear, powerful knowing uh, can be misleading because you think somehow that that's an attainment. It is an attainment, but it's just a samatha attainment. It isn't a true knowing or knowledge of reality. So you can apply that to the practice of vipassana and, and get results quite quickly. If you're interested, you could read our booklet, take one of our courses, maybe try to do an intensive course and see the difference. I recently started suffering from tinnitus after a panic attack. Can the power of meditation help me in coping with this condition? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's good that you phrased it that way because it it probably won't make your tinnitus go away, but uh, um, it should certainly help you have a better relationship with panic and, and anxiety so that you don't get panic attacks. I mean, don't try to cre be careful about creating narratives about how the tinnitus came because it becomes your story where you, you get depressed about how, oh, if only I hadn't had, had this happen, then I wouldn't have that happen and that sort of thing. So don't worry about what happened in the past. If you have tinnitus, just note the hearing. And if you have panic, just note the panic and try and break things apart into their actual experiences. How does samsara and kamma pass on to another being after death if the Buddha taught non-self? <laughs> well, um, they don't. And there is no being in the first place, let alone another being. That's what non-self is. So I mean I guess I guess that's not quite what you're asking, but um, the answer is the same as how does yesterday's me transfer onto today's me? There's no actual difference. Uh, we think there's a difference because we say, well, because of the physical, but it's not because of the physical. The mind doesn't depend on the physical. Reality doesn't depend on the physical. Physical is actually kind of conceptual. I mean, the body is a, con is a concept. The brain is a concept. Reality is our experience. And if anything, the physical body is a filter, uh, like a prison that keeps the mind in a specific uh, pattern or specific set of experiences, the senses. Uh, but moment to moment, the mind continues, and the same thing happens at death. That's all. It's not anything really mysterious. How do you understand the exact same thought scenario or repetitive thought appearing endlessly, coming from a place of anger? I feel like using metta is suppressing it. It just comes back again and again. Yeah, mitta is really less effective than mindfulness. Um, so a part of the practice of satipatthana is um, changing our relationship with things so that rather than uh, trying to stop them from coming back again and again, we become less impressed or, or upset by them coming back again and again. Seeing that things come back again and again 
help helps you be more familiar with this quality of reality of impermanence and non-self that you're not in control and that things are not predictable or according to your wishes um and and that those realizations lead to a, a a freedom lead the mind to letting go they um, they lead the mind to abandon clinging and craving and desire and so that's the benefit um but the key is to take a, a stance of trying to become more familiar with the experiences and less triggered by the experiences rather than trying to change them or get rid of them or fix them mindfulness satipatthana is all about wisdom it's about seeing things clearly rather than fixing them or changing them changing the way we perceive them so that they no longer cause us suffering if our aim is to be aware at all times thus reaching nibbana would not the lengthy meditation sessions cultivate the patience the attention that we need yeah sure lengthy meditation sessions but um one thing to be aware of is that uh lengthy Um, but inconsistent meditation sessions are going to be less effective than moderate but consistent meditation sessions. So you have to consider two factors, how often you practice and how long you practice. If you're doing many short practices, that's not so helpful. If you're doing very few long sessions, that's also not very helpful. So the best solution is somewhere in the middle, and also to do walking and sitting together. That's recommended. I have a wooden tile from Thailand depicting the Buddha. As I fix my eyes on this tile, I start walking backwards. Am I breaking some rules? I feel I am progressing nicely. Well, progressing backwards. Um... Uh, you have to be careful of statements like I feel I'm progressing nicely. The question is progressing towards what? Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't say you're going backwards perhaps, but uh, that was more just a joke, I guess. You're not breaking any rules. Um, you're not practicing mindfulness. So you might experience peace and calm, and that might feel like practice somehow, but um it's not mindfulness it's not going to lead you to see clearly and and attain the goal of buddhism so not to discourage you it doesn't sound like an unwholesome practice uh the walking backwards part is a little concerning because i don't understand the point of it it sounds like a sort of a um ritualistic sort of thing and that can be problematic if you get obsessed with it and start finding meaning in it right these course sort of ritualistic things can lead to finding meaning and thinking there's some meaning like maybe walking backwards has some value or something um but and so the mind will start to encourage it and it will become a ritual or a habit of the mind and i've seen people who fall into very very elaborate physical patterns 
um, of hand movement and, and just, it's kind of feels involuntary, but it's like, um, you know, the mind gets into this habit and starts evolving it and so on. So I wouldn't say moving backwards has any value and I would recommend trying to be a little more mindful and just, if you're going to stare at the Buddha, you can just say to yourself, Buddha, 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 and think about the Buddha's qualities and that's quite wholesome. Still not mindfulness, but can be helpful. Bhante, we've crossed the hour. There's one question mm -hmm. left in tier one. Do you have time to answer? Yeah. Go ahead. Thank you. How can I forgive my doctor's past actions whose cortisol injections gave me tinnitus? Can meditation help? You don't have to forgive per se. I mean, it, it ends up looking a lot like forgiveness, but you have to let go. So the best way is to focus on your anger and not to uh, trivialize it or dismiss it. Try and take it as an object of meditation. Don't see it as right, or if you do feel righteous about it, so make sure you're noting that as well. But just try and note the anger and the sadness and the disliking of the tinnitus and that sort of thing. There's nothing special there. Just don't make, a, don't make it into something it's not. It's just experiences. The anger is an experience. And, and then the forgiving is just sort of a natural expression of that. You don't, there's nothing really to forgive because you don't see it as some, some problem something that you dislike right it's only we only forget need to forgive people if they've done something bad and the problem is seeing things as bad uh, i mean qualitatively it could appear to you as obviously bad but it's not it's just an experience and only when you see experiences as experiences and let go of the judgments of bad can you, you know, move past holding grudges and that sort of thing Thank you, Bhante. That's all the questions we're prepared to ask today. Great. Thank you all. It was a good session. Have a good week. I wish you all good practice, peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu. <laughs>